Coming to you from the greatest city in the world, this is the number one showbiz podcast. It's Talk for Two. Here's your host, Matt Bailey. Thank you so much, Mr. Gary Owen. And as always, thank you to our season sponsors, Axtel Expressions and the Tangent Bound Network. Find fantastic podcasts at tangentboundnetwork.com and all your entertainment needs are at axtel.com. Today, we welcome Mark Rickert, an author with a unique tie to the country music community. Rickert is the grandson of true Nashville royalty, Merle Kilgore. Kilgore, who passed away in 2005, was responsible for several hits, including Johnny Cash's Ring of Fire, which he co-wrote with June Carter. Now, Rickert has written a unique biography about the life and work of his grandfather, The book, These Are My People, is available from Amazon and on digital e-readers. I've linked to it below. In the book, Rickert paints a picture of Kilgore, his family, and all of Daddy Merle's famous friends. While Kilgore charted a few of his own songs, the majority of his fame and notoriety came within the Nashville elite for his songwriting and hit-making prowess. If the name Kilgore sounds familiar to this program, a few years ago we welcomed Merle's son, Steve, to the show. I am now so proud to welcome Steve's nephew, Mark, who has written an excellent, excellent book. I can't tell you what a quick read and what a fascinating read it is. It reads like a novel and tells many anecdotes about Merle through his relationships with the stars of country music, Merle's people. Here now to tell us about the most famous man in country music you've never heard of, our interview with Mark Rickert. Mark Rickert, welcome to Talk for Two. How are you today, sir? I'm great. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm so excited to get to talk to you about your new book, These Are My People. I am curious, uh, what is your relation to its subject, Merle Kilgore? Can you explain that for our listeners? And how are you related through what family members of his? Yeah, Matt. So uh, these are my people. A story of Merle Kilgore, and uh, yes. Merle Kilgore was my grandfather. Yep. Um, my mother um, was his first child, Pamela Kilgore. So he's my grandfather through my mother's side. Wow, that's really cool. Yeah, I was curious. How many kids did uh, did Merle have in his life? How big is the family? So, Merle had uh, three biological children. Mm-hmm. Um, Pam, Steve, Kim. And uh, Shane and Dwayne became his uh, adopted children later on. So he had a pretty sizable family. Oh, that's really, that is really cool. Now, what was it like growing up for you around, around your grandfather? Were you Were you around him a lot or... Uh, or were you, was he kind of kept separately because of his work as a, as a songwriter? No, we were a a close family, um, through the, you know, when I was, when I was a child, he was, uh, bigger than life grandfather, a little aloof back then, you know, he would come and, uh, in fact, I write about this, our, our relationship, some in the book, um, he would come to Nashville and, take us all, you know, the Toys R Us on our birthdays. And uh, he was always bigger than life. And he was always kind of a, a, the spotlight always shined on him and our family. Um, it wasn't until I got a little bit older and started to understand, before I started to understand 
who he was and what he meant to the industry. Wow. Yeah. When did you first realize how big of a, of a person he was in, in country music? Well, you know what? I think probably the first time uh, I got a, a sense of that, we were in Alabama um, at his home in Coleman, Alabama, big A-frame house uh, out in the woods by the lake, which I only recently really found out that that was also Hank Lynch Jr.'s home before uh, Merle took over in the early 80s. Um, but anyways, we were... We were all watching a movie one night in the living room, and uh, somebody came to the door and knocked. And we were all kind of, you know, I was probably eight, uh, maybe younger, and we were all kind of nervous at first, like, who's this guy? And the guy came, and I think he had a paper plate. <laughs> he, was, he was clearly drunk, and he was asking for my grandfather's signature. And uh, I just remember that is one of the first moments of like, wow, people want my grandfather's signature in he, the middle of the night. He couldn't find privacy in the middle of the woods in Alabama? <laughs> no. <laughs> nope. <laughs> That's right. Um, and then, I, you know, around that same time, too, I, he was on like, he was on a big game show. Um, we were, you know, I remember him scrambling to try to find a VHS tape to record it because uh you know, one of the questions made about Wolverton Mountain or something was was on this game show, and there was even a clip of him talking. You know, so that's when I started. We all, my brothers and I, started to understand who this guy was. You know, now you get a sense in the book, keeping with the, the theme of of him being popular, but also you know, kind of a qu- relatively quiet, not not so much a big personality like you know a Johnny Cash or an Elvis Presley. You told me we had a we talked a little bit before this interview. You told me that he was not so much a celebrity outside of country music. I'm assuming incidents like the drunk showing up at the house are were rare, but he was a huge celebrity within country music. Did it ever? Is that how he wanted it? Did he not really want to be known? To the general public, was he happy just to be known in those professional circles? Yeah, you know, that was a, a question that I was curious about, too, um, you know, as I was writing this book. Because I know early in his career, he wanted to be that front man. Yeah. Um, and, it, you know, I, I say this in the book as well, that there were different phases uh, in his life, and there were different moments of fame, and sometimes um, I think he, he, got, he got pretty far up the ladder as far as notoriety. Yeah. Um, but then later on when he became frontman for Hank Wentz Jr., I think that's when he truly hit his stride, and uh, I, I don't think he ever looked back at that point, point. and I think it was getting late in his career um, before that happened. So it, it seemed just from my, um, overview of his life that he was getting to a stage where he was getting, he was getting a little bit, um, old for this stuff, you know, and and not being able to, to truly take off. And, um, at that point is when Hank Wimps Jr. asked him to be his, his, um, his manager. And yeah, I think that was the moment too, where all those sort of aspects of Merle's life, his fame, his songwriting, his charisma, his connections with the industry, he brought that all together and uh, he was able to be successful for Hank Williams Jr. 
Yeah, and uh, what made Hank want to choose a songwriter as as his manager? What made him want to choose Merle? Well, so Merle was his was Hank Williams Jr.'s um, friend since yep. since Hank was fourteen years old. Mm-hmm. Um, I think for Hank Jr., Merle represented a bridge between his father uh, because. As I write in the book, Merle really he was brought into the country music industry through Hank Williams Sr. Yep, um, and just an amazing stroke of luck of destiny. But Hank Williams gave Merle the opportunity, as you know, and Merle was a fourteen-year-old boy. Hank gave him an opportunity to carry the guitar <laughs> into the Louisiana Hayride, and um, and so that that moment right there really sort of informed Merle's entire life. And when uh, Merle had a chance to meet Hank again, Hank Jr., uh, when Hank was 14 years old, um, and they built a fast friendship. And so Merle was was with Hank throughout the entire course of his life, really. And so... I'm sorry, go ahead. Well, and and so getting to the point, I think when... uh, in the 80s, when uh, early mid 80s, I guess mid 80s, when Hank finally, uh, you know, needed a new manager, he reached out to Merle because he knew that Merle had been in the industry. He knew he trusted Merle, and they were best friends. They were practically family, uh, and so yeah, he took a chance on Merle, and I, I think it worked. And that's a chance. I, I think uh, you talk about that bridge, and I think about that time in entertainment. I think about that time in society, and I just. I wonder if if opportunities like that for young people that want to get into this industry, do you think they still exist? Because I think we're so security conscious now, you know, that a 14-year-old kid couldn't just, you know, (laughs) end up, you know, becoming friends with a superstar. It it seems like there's so many more barriers to entry now. Uh, Is that something that your grandfather ever kind of took note as he got older that the industry kind of maybe closed off a little bit to, to the fans that wanted to get inside? Uh, I'd say yes, but I think that Merle also extended that opportunity to mm-hmm. newcomers all the time. In fact, when he died, um, I remember uh, being at the funeral. So many people came up, shook our hands, and told us how open and how how Merle treated every individual, even from the janitor to the successful businessman. He treated them uh, like they were somebody special, you know? Yeah. So I'd say, yes, I I think um, that Merle was at the right place at the right time um, when country music, you know, when the doors were open because it was so new. Um, And, you know, I think he was at the right place, right time, and he always maintained that open um, atmosphere so that he, he took the time to meet people and, uh, he mentored a lot of people too. So they came to him for help and he was open to, to share his wisdom about the industry. And, uh, yeah. And he actually, he knew you wanted to be a writer. And I think he, uh, you told me he gave you some uh, pretty interesting advice about how tough it was going to be, right? <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Uh, I remember we, so when I, uh, as I grew up and got older, I started hanging out with him uh, at the Boogie Shack, is what he called his lake house out in Paris, Tennessee. 
And um, we spent a lot of time on that pontoon boat. And, uh, yeah, I remember I was telling him, I called him Daddy Merle. That was our family name, Daddy Merle. And, uh, you know, I would tell him, I want to be a writer, Daddy Merle. And he said, you know, Mark, plumbers make really good money. (laughs) That was his advice to me. And he was probably right. (laughs) No, no, I I bring that up because I want to talk about you. I want to talk about your decision to tell your grandfather's story. I, I could tell, and you could tell reading the book, and admittedly, I'm only a few co- a couple of chapters in because I've had a, a rather busy week, but it's an incredibly engrossing read. Um, what kinds of obstacles did you encounter when you decided you... First of all, what made you say, I want to set out and do this? I think uh, that you tell that story in the book too. But then further than that, what kind of obstacles did you encounter as you began to tell the story? I uh, I decided to write the book. I was um, I was getting my master's degree mm-hmm. when Judy Kilgore um, approached me about writing, and she knew I wanted to be a writer. And at that time, I was actually working on a novel uh, and my master's degree. And she asked me if I wanted to write Merle's book. And this was shortly after he passed away. And I just, I said, no, I did not want to take on that project. I knew I was already working on a master's thesis. I knew that, you know, writing um, something like this would be a huge uh, obstacle, a, a huge project to take on. And I didn't really know that much about country music. Uh, but I tell you, I had a dream, and it was so powerful. I dreamed that I was sitting on a hilltop with a 25-year-old Merle Kilgore, uh, and and for whatever reason, he had a bottle in his hand, you know, and he was sitting up there drinking. And I was looking at him uh, and and realized in my dream that he didn't even know who I was, you know. Uh, and I woke up, and that dream was very profound. It was profound enough to where I called Judy and I said, hey, okay, I want to take on this book. Um, and it, it still took me uh, a lot of years after that to actually – to nail this thing down. Um, in the meantime, I did write a novel. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was, it's an actual, uh, isn't actually a, a horror novel, oh, but wow. I think, right. Yeah. So very different project. Uh, and that just came out in 2014. It's called the tone poet. Wow. Very cool. Um, I'll have to read that. That, that I love horror. I love horror films. Great. I love horror yeah. books. I mean, my, my Stephen King library is insane, but anyway, <laughs> um, yeah, well, the and the tone boat was about music as well, um, oh, cool. because I guess music has always been a part of my family. But right, what that's you know. when yeah, and once I published the tone poet, my publisher asked me if I had anything else in work, and I said, well, I've been working on this uh, project about my grandfather, and they said that they were interested in seeing what I had, so I submitted uh, what I had, and it was an unfinished project, and my publisher had some really great advice. She wanted me to sort of incorporate my perspective uh, into into the Merle Kilgore story. So, yeah, I was stumped for a long time because I didn't quite know how to tell it. I, and uh, I think I approached it as a kind of hard biography at first. Um, but as I started fleshing out the idea, it, what interested me and one of the challenges that I was able to overcome overcome about his story was Instead of focusing exclusively on his story, I would tell the story of other country music artists uh, that it, that greatly influenced his life. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, he influenced their life. Uh, 
Mm-hmm. And that's why These Are My People um, became a pretty good title. First of all, he would get up on stage, and that was his sort of uh, his catchphrase. He'd get up on stage and say, these are my people. Uh, and I incorporated that idea into his book, and so each chapter becomes one of his people. So you have Hank Williams Sr., you have Elvis Presley, Webb Pierce, Johnny Horton, Hank Jr., and so the list goes on. Yeah, I notice you keep saying his book. You don't say my book. And I, I, I just have to point that out. I don't know if that means anything, but that's just so sweet. You know, it, it really... No, I think it, uh, to be quite honest with you, I, it is his book because these were his stories. Yeah. So in a way, you know, I've kind of thought of it as he kind of left me a gift. All his life, he told these really interesting stories. Um, and so when I started writing the book, I realized that, hey, I could just tell his stories, that his, you know, his multitude of stories, they tell kind of a complete narrative. Yeah. And so in many ways, he left me the blueprint of his own book. (laughs) That's incredible. And I'm curious, and I don't mean this in any rude way, because obviously, you know, you're talking to a country music fan and I care, but we, we started this conversation talking about how Merle was known, but he wasn't. You know, he was known in relation to so many in in the Nashville celebrity community, in the songwriting and and recording community. When you set out to write this, did anybody tell you, who cares? Why are you doing this? Who's going to read it? You know, because I find that's a challenge with a lot of authors, especially when they take on nonfiction subjects, um, that that they're up against people that don't believe in the story. Yeah, you know, I would say that the the primary person who said that to me was myself <laughs> because I said, who's going to read? I mean, as you point out, and I, I say this in a book, he had lots of fans and most of those fans were more famous than he was. Yeah. So he was kind of famous to famous people, but not to the general public. And yeah, that was, um, that thought occurred to me early on. And that's why um, I think the, the story became bigger when I started writing his perspective uh, through time, meeting these other uh, country music stars um, who are well known. So the people, uh, any you know, reader who wants to approach the book, they can rest assured it's not as much about Merle Kilgore as it is about these hugely famous, iconic, historic figures. You know, he was he was best man at Johnny Cash and June Carter's wedding. Mm-hmm. And I, there's a picture in the book that shows him putting the boutonniere on Johnny Cash's lapel um, right before the wedding. And I just think, I mean, Merle had these incredible moments. He was, he was there during these really historical moments. Uh, I write in there at one point at the Hayride that Elvis Presley comes, um, and and Merle was there backstage the night that Elvis became Elvis Presley. <laughs> wow. What does that mean? What does that mean in terms of just finding his style and finding his audience, Elvis? For the book? No, Elvis. Like, what happened that night on, on stage? Yes. So, uh, so Elvis actually... I guess a lot of people don't know this. I kind of just discovered it while writing the book. He 
uh, went to the Grand Old Opry, and he was not a good fit. You know, the Grand Old Opry <laughs> was very conservative, yeah. very conservative, and, yeah. and you know they had a mold of what they felt the country music artist needed to look like and sound like, mm-hmm. uh, and they turned him away. And as often the case, they sent him to the Louisiana Hayride uh, in Shreveport. And this was kind of the farm team. And this is also where Merle yep. grew up next door to it. Um, so this amazing place where really it was the farm team for the Grand Ole Opry. Um, the amateurs would go to uh, the Hayride, and if they could make it there, then the Grand Ole Opry would snatch them up. But they turned Elvis away. Elvis went to the Hayride. Merle was there the day that Elvis arrives. Oh, uh, and I write about this moment where Elvis comes in and Elvis had painted his shoes uh, white and pink, I think. And, uh, and you know, my grandfather sees him and he sees real potential in this kid, but nobody knows who Elvis is. Uh, and that night they get uh, an opportunity to um, sing twice on the Hayride, um, two different sessions. So Elvis comes out. And he he does his gig, and uh, my grandfather says everybody just looks kind of terrified. <laughs> they did not know what to do with this guy, and I think Elvis was very uh, nervous, and it just it was all wrong. The tone was off. Um, and Horace Logan he writes a book that I really lean heavily on uh, about the Louisiana Hayride, and Horace was uh, the main host there on the Hayride show. Yep. Uh, and he even writes that, you know, Elvis and Merle go backstage and Merle, whatever Merle said to Elvis, apparently really got through to Elvis uh, and helped him out. Elvis comes back out, does his gig, and this time he wins the audience over. And that night he becomes uh, a megastar, really. Well, thank you. And, for sh- and Merle just happened to be there. No, thank you for sharing that story. That's That's really cool. Now... I want to close with a question I'm going to ask you since you've spent so much time peering into it. I, I know you might not want to suppose to speak for your grandfather, but anytime we get somebody related to songwriting on this show, I'm always curious, what would Merle say about the state of, of songwriting and the, and the way that songwriters are, are treated and, and valued today? I mean, everything has gone digital and it just seems like, uh, you know, there's the argument that songwriters kind of are considered last by the industry now, but Merle comes from a time where they really were revered. What do you think you would look around and see in Nashville today? Well, yes, Merle was an advocate for songwriters all his life. So uh, songwriters were near and dear to his heart, and he tried to help sing songwriters um, throughout his own career. Um, I I think that Merle also understood that, um, that the country music industry is evolving. Um, and so, and that it is, and I think the industry knows this too, that they can't do it without the songwriters. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think that Merle, um, if he were around, I don't know what he would say about how the industry, uh, the relationship between songwriters and, and the industry, but I think that he would certainly still try to support songwriters and always be an advocate for them. Wonderful. Mark Rickert, thank you so much. Well, I appreciate uh, the the interview. And um, yeah, let me know how uh, the rest of the book goes if you get a chance to finish it. Thank you, Mark. I hope it sells out for you a truly fascinating read about a truly fascinating show business legend. 
That's it for us today. Remember to follow Talk for Two on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Talk for Two, and it's at Talk for Two Pod on Instagram. You can email into the show at Talk for Two Cast at gmail.com. I answer those emails directly. And of course, visit our mothership, Talk for Two. Dot com. Signing off for Talk for Two, I'm Matt Bailey, reminding everyone out there to keep talking for two. You can hear more show business interviews with the stars at talkfor2.com.